0: Welcome back, Stu. Hi. (laughs)
1: Hi. Thank you for having me back yet again.
0: The audio, okay, the audio actually does sound fine. You're you're on- Does it? AirPods, yeah. It sounds fine. Now that I'm like truly listening to it in like a very, after a few minutes, I'm like, yeah, you sound good.
1: Once I am back and settled after the holidays, I will not send you on any more audio <laughs> wild goose chase.
0: It's giving At first. It was giving me the very first audio that you signed on with on your computer. It was giving me like the impromptu lady of the dunes call where like, we bo- literally, we both did it on headphone mics. Sounded like it was recorded in 1947. Like, it honestly did. Like radio frequencies. Added, like It did. No, it yes. did. Like,
1: we were communicating via like rotary phone. Honestly. It was like
0: walkie-talkie. It was like yes. across the country walkie-talkie. It was a vibe. It was a vibe. That was a that was a very like high energy episode. I liked that a lot. But thank you so much for jumping on, and thank you everybody for listening to Creep Time today. We have a very, very unique episode because we don't usually do this. I feel like we usually stray from covering the cases that are very topical and recent but we are covering the idaho massacre which how long ago did you hear about this did you hear about it when it was breaking in november or I is this think, recent
1: yeah no i heard about it when it was breaking in november because i think maybe it was you that told me but or maybe i saw it in the news and then you and i spoke about it very very briefly and it was right when there was like nothing known i mean still not much is known but when mm-hmm. nothing was known
0: um I think you're right. I think I vaguely remember that, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I probably, like, messaged you because my sister messaged me. This was around my brother's birthday, which was November 20th. And they were having a family party on the East Coast. I wasn't there. And she messaged me, and she was like, everyone here is talking about what happened in Idaho. And to that point, I hadn't heard anything. So I was like, what happened in Idaho? So she explained everything to me, and I was like, instantly got chills. I'm like, there's something... I hadn't heard about a case like that in a really long time, but I didn't want to cover it. I really didn't because I was so nervous about chasing cases like this because there are so many details that kind of fall away and things that get revealed in the process. But I felt like it was important to cover this because a lot of people have requested it, for one, but also you and I were talking about this and like the importance of putting more media pressure behind these things, especially now that we're six weeks into it and they're kind of standing in the same place. Mm -hmm. it's useful, I think, to talk about this and to frame it delicately from an educational standpoint, to really dispel a lot of misinformation and just give the most up-to-date timeline. Um, But also just to drive, yeah, like more media awareness and pressure, I think, from the state to keep funneling resources. Because we've seen this before, where like, the news will cover something for a couple of weeks while it's hot, and then the next hot topic comes along, and these cases just fall away. Yeah. Like two months, six months, a year down the line, no answers.
1: Yeah. I don't know um, if you had this experience, but it's sort of the, the news coverage of this case has been starting to feel a little bit like um, the Delphi murder news coverage a little bit. I felt the same
0: thing. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's thing. like
1: it's starting to they're they're I think probably purposely being very delicate about what information they're revealing but time is starting to elapse and mm-hmm. the more time that goes by, like the further and further away we're going to get from what happened. Um, so I think it's, I think it's really important that you like, you know, we kind of get ahead of that. This, time. not that we're going to be, you know, pushing that many right. people. to yeah, that know, solving anything, We have but... that much uh, influence, but you, you know, you do have a ton of influence on your, um, tick account and this podcast we can do as much as we can. Um, so I think, yeah.
0: yeah. I, I agree. I think anything to just handle it delicately and, you know, spread the word and come at it from uh, a place of compassion and being conscientious about how we're sharing information and not sharing speculation, I think is the difference. Right. We'll just be helpful for the case in the long run. I totally agree. Um, but I did think of that. I thought of the Delphi murders. But the difference between that and this is that I think police and the Delphi murders were strategically withholding information. Mm-hmm. Whereas what concerns me about this case and what we'll get into in a little bit, is they have retracted a lot of information, which tells me they are settling on things, Mm -hmm. saying them publicly in press conferences, and then pulling them back. And it's not even just the police, because I saw this with the mayor as well Mm. in Moscow. So there's a lot of stuff to get into. I was going to give you a top line, and then I was going to run through just a little bit of backstory about the students themselves, the four of them, because I've heard a lot about the atrocities of the Idaho massacre, but I didn't hear a lot about who these people were mm-hmm. and then i wanted to run you through the most accurate up-to-date timeline i have done you cannot imagine the research i've done i'm burnt out i'm strung out <laughs> and i'm really really jittery for this but oh, I, I can imagine I, I, have, I have reconstructed the timeline and i've found some things along the way that i've truly truly rocked my shit, i'll be very honest with you um so let's get into the top line just as a refresher for anybody who is not familiar with the case because as i learned today. Um, I still have some friends who do not know very much about this story. They just know the headline of it. So when did this happen and what exactly happened? This is in the late hours of November 13th, 2022. That is how recent this is. In a three-story off-campus apartment, there were these four college students that were brutally, brutally stabbed to death in the middle of the night using what police have concluded was like a Rambo-style knife. It's like a massive... Fixed blade knife, which some have reported most likely was something like a type of weapon that would commonly be associated with the U.S. Marine Corps, which led a lot of people to believe that whoever's behind this could be ex military, but that's alleged. We don't know if that's true. The best visual that I could give for that type of knife would be something similar to Scream. That's what I thought of the knife that Ghostface uses in Scream. Yeah. I mean, from what I saw in pictures. So. Most people, like I said, have heard slivers of this case, and they've heard it referred to as the Moscow-Idaho massacre, but it is now considered the worst mass homicide in the town's history, according to the veteran coroner. And then there's just this chilling story that nobody seems to know who's behind it. Like, they're still out there somewhere, just an unnamed person roaming the town or elsewhere in Idaho, maybe not even in the state anymore. So we're now six plus weeks, like we were saying, beyond the tragedy, and police still seem to be turned around as they have a complete absence of any credible witnesses outside of anyone who's already come forward. We have a missing murder weapon, and they have no lead suspect that they have named publicly. This is the recreation of the alleged timeline from the night, and I just wanted to piece it together. And like I said, the intention is to build out the timeline of the story to keep the pressure on the media coverage, keep pressure on investigators to pursue and on the state as a whole to keep funneling resources into the case to get it solved for the families. So before I do, I'm just going to give you a little bit of backstory just about who the students were and what we're going to get into. So we have four of these students that were found in the home. And among the four, it included 20-year-old Ethan Chapin. He's from Washington. So he was a fraternity member. And you'll learn with all of them that they're kind of fraternity, sorority um, kids. And he was majoring in recreation, sport, and management. And from everything I read from his family and friends, the people who described him, he was kind of this kid who you would walk into a room and he just lights it up, right? He was an avid sports lover. He grew up playing soccer. He had this deep love for country music. And I was uh I think I'd mentioned before to you that he he was one of two twins. He was part of a triplet. And I don't know. I I did find that like very, very devastating. I was trying to think of why that struck me in such an odd way though, or such an upsetting way because it is devastating to lose a sibling, of course, but something about twins, there's a deeper connection I feel where, I don't know. It just, it just hit me. I I just, I didn't know that up until that point. Um, And then for context, just for like continuity, as I go into the story, he is dating Xana. So that's why he was actually over. Um, he did not live in this apartment. He was just staying the night because Zana was his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So then we get into who Zana was. 20-year-old Zana Kernodle. She was from Arizona. And I think just like Madison, who was one of the other victims, she was a marketing major, I believe, and a part of Pi Beta Phi sorority. And she was described by those who knew her as just a very positive person, a very lighthearted person. And we also have 21-year-old Madison Mogan. Um, I've heard some people pronounce it as Mojin. Uh, she's an Idaho native. She was also a marketing major. She's in the same sorority as Zana, And she actually worked at a nearby restaurant, I think, with Xana. They both worked at the same place. And since um, Madison was a marketing major, she was running the social media accounts for the restaurant. And that would lead us to the fourth victim, which is 21-year-old Kaylee uh, Goncalves, but I've, he- I've heard other people pronounce it, uh, Gunsalves. She's also an Idaho native. I think her and Madison knew each other from middle school. They were like very, very old childhood friends. Um, She was a general studies major, and I think she had reportedly, she was hoping to become an elementary school teacher down the line. That was the end goal. And I think she was in her senior year, and she was a part of Alpha Phi sorority, described by her sister as the ultimate go-getter and as a passionate person who was just really eager and excited to start her life after college. And it should be noted that, like I said, only three of these girls actually lived and had a lease in this apartment at 1122 King Road. We don't know how deliberate these killings were, I'll say that, because there's no telling if Ethan wasn't there that night, if he would have been caught in the crossfire of this, or if he would have been targeted as well if he was at his own apartment. So the three girls, they lived there full-time, but they were not the only ones who lived there. This is a six-bedroom place, and it's right near Fraternity Row, and they had two other roommates, both of which were unharmed in the murders, and I think they actually they were the ones who discovered the bodies. And then, before I cover the timeline, I just want to preface that these two roommates, the surviving roommates, they have been publicly ruled out for reasons unknown. That's not been disclosed by police. So I'm first going to get into the discovery, but before I do, had you heard anything thus far about those students or I had. is this all?
1: Yeah. Um, I knew about the roommates being the ones that um, made the discovery and that they had been ruled out. Um, and then I believe that two of them, like they, they were each in pairs, right? Like they weren't all four out together. They were in,
0: like in the apartment or out for the out night? Out for the night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, it's true. I think Kaylee and Maddie were both out together and then Eric and Zana were out together as well. So yeah, separate of each other. And I'm not sure if I read this correctly, but I think the two roommates, the surviving roommates who were Dylan and Bethany, they were also out that night. And I think they might have been out together. Okay. I'm not 100% on that, but that was the way it was described in most of the research that I saw. Because I think they both came home at the same time, Dylan and Bethany. They got home before anybody that night. Mm -hmm. Now we should talk about them actually, because they play a huge part in the actual discovery. And I wanted to talk about this first because I find this to be one of the most perplexing parts of the story, just how the bodies were discovered, how it was reported to police. So I'm going to go through that and then we'll get into the recreation of what the night looked like. Now there was this like immense amount of confusion and misreported information on the discovery of the bodies which is why I think there was so much initial distrust in the police work on this, because so much of what was said, what was perpetuated, had to be walked back. Now, the two other students, like you kind of touched on, they slept on a different floor from where the murders actually took place. So allegedly, they heard nothing. That's what they're saying. And the entire ordeal took place on the second and third floor, which seemed really shocking at face value to think that like they had, they had no knowledge of any of this. And police have been very confusing in the research, truth be told, about the 911 call situation, and they still have not released the audio for that, although I was reading today they're gearing up to do so, to release the recordings of the 911 oh, calls. really? Which suggests to me that they're probably gearing up to make a very big announcement of something they've discovered. But up until this point, those have been concealed. Nobody has heard them. Um, and they, they've been very murky on the details about that. But what we do know... What has been reported was that at around 11.58 a.m. on the morning of November 13th, this is like a suspected eight hours after we think the murder took place, the first of two 911 calls came into police. It is completely unclear who called, um, again, because we haven't heard anything, and police have been very, very hush about this. But there have been reports that one of those calls came from one of the dead students' cell phones, which is very bizarre to me. And the call, the initial call to 911, did not report anyone dead. They claimed that someone was found unconscious, which is also extremely strange considering how brutal these stabbings were and, like, what the scene was described to be. It was described to be, like, a a complete massacre. So for a phone call to come in to sort of, I don't know, paint the picture of someone being unconscious, I, I immediately found that to be strange, unless it was misreported by police, you know? Yeah. Now... Like I said, it was confirmed that Dylan and Bethany, they were the first to discover the bodies and it was such a graphic scene up on the second floor that reportedly one of them had completely blacked out and the other started calling their friends in a, I'm only imagining in a state of hysteria is is what I can assume. Yeah. So other students were actually contacted and arrived at the apartment before 911 was called. Did you read that? Because I found that very odd.
1: I did not. And that is, oh my gosh, I I kind of, the line of thinking there, I I know that they probably were so freaked out and it's just like you're trying to, anybody to kind of corroborate what you're seeing almost is real. Uh, It could have been the intention behind calling all those people, but
0: wow. That's the only thing I can imagine is it must have been a state of hysteria because they have definitively, been ruled out by police but i just the details of that seem so counter because i'm like what do you mean you stumbled upon a massacre and you called your friends to like come over for for what
1: i i have no idea the only thing i could really think is that you're just you're panicking and you're just like oh my god like i need i need support in this moment like i'm gonna you know people are blacking out whoever fainted yeah um the only... Maybe they just
0: couldn't fully process and make rational decisions in the moment, make adult decisions if yeah. from what they were seeing. Yeah. I can't even imagine like what what must have been going through their minds. Yeah. But I, I agree. That's what I I'm sort of leaning towards is that they might have been having a a moment of intense shock. Yeah. Now, like I've said on this, we've we've said it's bizarre the the sequence of the calls for friends first, nine one one second, and I don't want to downplay the confusion or the mania they might have been experiencing to go upstairs and see what they saw. Now, we're talking about a scene, just to drive this a bit further for context, um, we are talking about a scene here that is extraordinarily gruesome. And I think one of the most famous or infamous photos that's been circulated about this was the blood that was pooling from the second floor. There were photos that surfaced from the outside of the home that Mm. showed blood from the second floor that was kind of leaking from the foundation which also played into this confusion of everyone was saying, how could you call and report somebody being unconscious? But you would see that and not call and report that as the immediate Mm -hmm. issue. So people have criticized what that means, how that happened. And again, there could be misinformation coming out from police. We don't know. It's all speculation as of right now. Now, just to reiterate, these two roommates, they have been definitively ruled out again by police. Um, But it should also be reiterated that Dylan and Bethany... They had rooms on the first floor of the apartment, and I just want to drive home that Ethan and Zana were on the second floor. Kaylee and Maddie were on the third. So there, there are some distinctions there just between levels, and we would hear from some of the witness testimony of former tenants who lived there just how thick some of those walls could be. And plus, they were drinking that night. A lot of these factors could have played into how they didn't hear anything between the designated hours of when we think the murder took place. And... What happened was immediately, once 911 does get that call and they show up to the scene, not only do they find someone blacked out, but they see the massacre before them. Police immediately descend upon the scene, try to piece together what happened. And I think they had just gravely, gravely underestimated how monstrous these murders were. I mean, not once in 16 years on the field had the designated coroner on this witnessed a homicide in which four of the victims were located in the same residence. It's it's truly like an unheard of scenario for Moscow. So before I jump into the timeline, I just wanted to get your initial thoughts on the shock of that and what that was like to, to read and go through for the first time.
1: I have a couple of questions and I'm not sure if you can clarify them for me. So the were all four of the bodies found on the same floor or had the killer run up, killed on the second floor, run up, killed on the third floor and then seemingly fled?
0: So what we think is the latter. We think we think these bodies were definitely found on separate floors. Okay. Um there's been a little bit of walk back from police. I'm gonna get into some of the stuff that they've said and then retracted because I've been keeping a tab on it. But part of what they said at first was that everybody was found in their designated beds. They then walked back on that and said some of them were found outside of their beds. But the point of the story that has not changed was that Ethan and Xana were found on the second floor. Kaylee and Maddie were found on the third. The other two roommates were on the first floor. There's also a dog involved in this, not the dog that was found weeks prior, but there's like a dog in the apartment that was, I think I'm assuming on the first floor. I hadn't read that, but- And the dog was alive. The the dog was alive. That also plays into the oddity of there being no, like the dog not like alarming that there was someone in the house, like a foreign person in the house.
1: How strange. It's
0: very, very bizarre. Yeah. I'm going to get into a lot of the oddities that don't really make sense. Um, even like when it comes to point of entry, point of exit, like I recreating this is truly wild. Let me let me run you through the actual timeline just so I can keep a tab on like where everybody was the night of and what each moment means for the next. So, one of the most sinister relics to this story, I think, is, is just the numerous posts, the videos, the camera footage, everything that we kind of get out of the case, and things that came just hours, hours before these crimes were committed. That's the most sinister part of like peeling through all this evidence is just seeing how happy go lucky everybody was just having no knowledge of like what was to come in the next couple of hours. is just so eerie to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one that the media has really fixated on, I think at first was this like final Instagram post, which came from Kaylee and it's a picture of all four of them. I'm sure you've seen yeah. it because it's like the big headline yeah. photo and it was posted, I think either the day prior or the same day, like earlier that day. And they're all smiling it's captioned, one lucky girl to be surrounded by these people every day, which I wanted to talk about just to sort of like drive home the idea that they weren't just like acquaintances or roommates, they were friends, they were close. And it's, it's really devastating to see a picture like that just 24 hours in advance with none of them knowing. There's no anticipation of what was to come. But to set that up, let's reconstruct what actually happens the night out, because you were right when you said not all of them were together. In fact, none of them were really together. Um, they were in pairs. So we'll start with the couple Ethan and Zana. Let's go with them first. So that night they would attend a frat party and they're leaving and I think they're confirmed to arrive there by 8 p.m. that night. And if you look on maps, it's like a two minute drive. It's like 10 Mm -hmm. minutes walking. It's very, very close to the apartment. So they would remain at that party for the majority of the night. And if we fast forward a couple of hours, two hours to 10 p.m., that's where we see Maddie and Kaylee. Now, they get picked up from their apartment by a friend and they're heading over to the Corner Club, which is like a sports mm-hmm. bar in the downtown part of Moscow. Now, from countless witnesses, because, of course, everybody wanted to know, like, what happened at the frat party? What happened at the, at the Corner Club? They've interviewed, like, 700 people thus far in this case. Neither the frat party or the Corner Club have reported anything that was, like, off-kilter or sinister, right? Like, nothing that could relate back to the case. There's no reported fights. There's no lover's quarrels. There's no pursuits or illegal hard drug use. Like, it's a pretty normal night at both parties, like both outings. So then we roll around to 1am. Now, 1am is important because this would mark the first two people to arrive back because that night Dylan and Bethany had also gone out to a completely separate party than the other two. Um, They are the first to come back to the apartment. So they get there by 1. They go to the first floor And they're the first there at 1122 King Road. Then by 1.45 a.m., that's when Ethan and Xana return back to the apartment from their frat party. They go up to the second floor. Now, Kaylee and Maddie, their timeline is a little bit different. And we would actually get more camera footage about where they were at different points in the night, which is invaluable to this case and, like, ruling people out. So they leave the corner club by 1.30 a.m., and then they start heading over to grab food. And I'm sure you've seen this video because people have also fixated on this mm-hmm. footage. Have you seen this by chance? The, like, yeah. grub it's...
1: truck or whatever.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it's like, a, it's like a couple minutes walk from the Corner Club. It's still in, like, the downtown, like, metro area. So this is maybe, like, 135, 140. They're both seen on camera at the food truck. And what's wild about that is that that footage, it's not actually, like, a security camera. It's a Twitch stream. I hadn't read that.
1: Oh, I didn't read that either.
0: Yeah. It's like, a, well, it's a grub truck. You were right. But what they do to like promote their business is they do like a live stream of them like in action every night. Wow. So not only did we get camera footage, we had like full high quality audio of what they were saying, which was in like I said, invaluable to, Wow! Yeah, to like piecing together like who's around them. Like what are they saying? Like what's their state of mind? Are they upset? Are they happy? And there's really nothing sinister about the footage at all. It's just very helpful again for police to like see that and be like, okay. A, B, C, and D are around them. We're going to find them. We're going to interview them. And most people have fixated on one person in the video, the unknown man. Well, he was an unknown man at the time in the hoodie who's kind of seen, like, lurking behind the girls at a distance, and he's just kind of watching them. He's clearly, clearly pursuing them. Now, this sparked a massive, massive discussion online about his potential involvement, all of which was speculation and would eventually be ruled out according to police, so Ultimately, once this footage comes out after the murders, every single person who was seen on camera eventually gets found, interviewed, and ruled out for the time being, that that man included. The man in the hood, he's seen watching the girls. I think he interacts with another man who's standing there, and it's unclear what he's saying, but he's clearly, like, talking to this guy about the girls, whether he was trying to, like, pursue one of them or get their number. He could have just been a creepy guy who was, like, preying on one of them. But they catch a rideshare. They like get into an Uber to head back home. And you can see, that's where you get confirmation that he was definitely pursuing them because as they get into the rideshare, he's seen on camera and he kind of like exhales and like shrugs, like, great, I missed my chance. Is like the, if I could describe his motion. Mm -hmm. And then he starts booking it off camera, headed somewhere. Unclear where he was going, but again, without the context of police, like finding him, interviewing him and eventually ruling him out yeah, that looked really sinister. He was pursuing her. They get in the car. He looks upset. And then he starts running off camera. It it seemed like a lead for a second. But those who were working on the case, like I said, they finally get him and they dispel all conspiracy around him because they, they have no grounds to charge him with anything. I think he even had an alibi that absolved him from any involvement here. So then we fast forward in our timeline to exactly one fifty-five. That is when the girls get home, Kaylee and Maddie, their rideshare drops them off, and so begins the countdown. It's really the countdown of the final hour before all four of them would have their lives taken between 3 to 4 a.m., and those stabbings take place. Now, let's reconstruct a little bit of what happened between 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. in that final hour, because that's a little odd, too. Kaylee and Maddie, they go up to the third floor, and I think they're in the same bed. They, like, crawl into bed together. Uh, for whatever reason, just to like hang out after they've been drinking, and Kaylee would call her ex-boyfriend Jack between two twenty-six a.m. to two forty-four a.m. for an odd number of times. It's like six times she calls mm-hmm. him, and then we would also see in phone records that Maddie called him too, three times. So it's not entirely clear why they were trying to reach him, but if I'm piecing this together, it's like they get inside. They go up to the third floor, they crawl into bed together after they're, you know, they're drunk, and they start talking about Jack, the ex-boyfriend. And then as as Kaylee's trying to call him all those times, and he doesn't pick up a single time, not once, Maddie's like, I'm gonna try to call him on my phone. He does not pick up once. The very last call that she makes would end at 2:52 a.m. All calls stop. We now arrive at 3 a.m. Now, sometime. Between 3 to 4 a.m., we know that an unknown person arrived at that home in secret and most likely entered through the second story sliding door. There were only two possible points of entry, right? There's either the first door, which is like the front door on the first floor, which is unlikely because that would have been the floor where, obviously, uh, Dylan and Bethany are sleeping. Or you go in through the second story sliding door, which is kind of like on a hill, in the wooded part behind the house, like right below the deck. There's also a ladder that was found, which could have been used, I suppose, to get to the third floor, although police think that's very unlikely. Mm-hmm. But it's assumed that the second floor was the point of entry. Now, what the coroner has suggested is that based on the scene, all four were most likely attacked and killed in their sleep, with the possible exception being Xana, because she was the only one reported to be found with significant defensive wounds, meaning that she definitely tried to fight the attacker off. So, what's being alleged is that the killer enters through the second floor, stabs Ethan first, kills Ethan immediately. Then, Xana wakes up, possibly, and tries to fight the attacker, who then stabs her as well. The attacker then goes upstairs to the third floor gets into the room. I think there's two bedrooms up there because, again, the girls are in the same room in the same bed together at this point, we think, or they were found this way, and then gets into that room and attacks Kaylee and Maddie while they're in their sleep. Not a single sound is ever heard by Dylan or Bethany on the first floor. None of the four victims, again, showed any signs that they were fighting back except for Xana, and none of them, not a single one, had any signs of sexual assault when examined. So this was purely, purely to kill them, police believe. Now, that coroner also stated that the toxicology reports are still pending for all four students, but she does not believe that that will be relevant to the case. Whatever their drinking or drug use was that night, it probably had nothing to do with what happened to them. So if that's the case, the question is, why did this happen, right? When you first heard that, did you know the timeline and, like, the roadmap of where this person was moving throughout the house, or was it unclear? I, it
1: was unclear to me. Um, I, d- to be honest, my first thought when I saw it on the news, I just thought, okay, they all were, like, awakened in the same room, and this person just came in, and it was a disaster or something. Like, I, I had no idea. And then reading about moving through the house is just so creepy and, and disturbing because... Not only is it disturbing because there's people that survived it, but it seemed like this person had a pretty clear idea of who was in that house and, and how they were going to execute the plan. And I do wonder if they knew Bethany and Dylan and if they purposely didn't go down there. Cause like clearly this person knew the apartment building well enough to know that it's a multi-level, um, or maybe they didn't. Like a do- I mean, yeah. But, but wouldn't that be? Well, kind of obvious? I
0: think I think they did. Yeah. I think they did definitely. I mean, I'm unsure about Bethany and Dylan, and whether or not I'm actually unsure about Ethan and Zana because I think Ethan and Zana might have been collateral. Yeah. In the attempt to go for Kaylee and um, and and Maddie. I. Let's see. Well, there is something here that I I want to touch on that might even support that a bit further. So this was actually something that wasn't released by police, but as we've learned, when police and the coroner and the examiner start talking to the families and the families get interviewed. The families share more details often. That's how we've learned things about, we've learned about Julia Davis that way. We've learned about Debbie Collier that way. I would reference this one point that was made. Now, when we talk about motive here, the motive is never clear. Kaylee's father has alluded from reports that have come in from the coroner on private phone conversations that Maddie and Kaylee's injuries were significantly mm. worse than those of Ethan and Zana, which is shocking to me. It's shocking because from everything that I've heard in the reports, and this is inconclusive, I mean, obviously I don't know for sure, but everything that has been said publicly, Xana was the only one who was reported with defensive wounds that she was fighting back. So it shocks me that Xana did not have the worst of the injuries, but the two who were sleeping upstairs had such grotesque mutilations. Well, I just, I I couldn't wrap my mind around that. It seemed deliberate. Well,
1: that's what I was going to say. It feels like it was... So now that I'm going with the idea that maybe they were collateral, um, it would make sense that he just walks in and, or sorry, I shouldn't say he, but I'm just going, my gut is feeling like it's a he because of how violent the attacks were. Um, because all those girls mm-hmm. look pretty small though. So I, I don't know if mm-hmm. um, this person overpowered her fairly easily. But then, yeah, I mean, if the mutilations and the, Stabbing's that the two girls upstairs were just like way worse. I mean, you have to kind of think that it was intended for just them. um
0: Yeah, very hate yeah. fueled, very deliberate, yeah. and targeted. I would say, but it's definitely, it's definitely speculation, and it's just it's yes. alleged that this happened because I think what was told or what I heard was that the coroner said this in privacy to the parents, to Kaylee's parents, and she was then criticized for this because they were like, you're overstepping Mm -hmm. your bounds, you're releasing information that shouldn't be released yet because we have an ongoing investigation. But I don't think the intent, if this was true that she said this information, I don't think the intent was to compromise the investigation. I think the intent was to give details to families that don't have a lot right now. They don't have anything to go off of. But it does kind of seem like that. It seems like, as horrific and horrible as that is, that it's even possible if this person entered through the second floor and immediately come into Eric and Zanna's space, they didn't mm-hmm. anticipate that. They were collateral in that way because maybe like they weren't targeted at all. That's that's what I'm saying is like the uncertainty of why Ethan and Zanna were involved. It just seems like they were in the crossfire of whatever was planned for Kaylee or, yeah. or Maddie.
1: I, I would think so also because they were out separately. It would be one thing if they were had all been out together and then all this happened but I think it's really telling that they were out completely separately from each other. Um, and that Maddie and, um, what's her, Kaylee, Maddie Maddie and Kaylee Kaylee, on the third floor. Yeah. Also interesting that they were out later because that to me seems like, yeah, I, I guess, you, you know, my feeling on the, as you get later and later on in the night, like things just start to, um, compound like the, the, ability for things to go wrong I think starts to compound a little bit so I find it interesting that they also had been out separately and also out later there have been more people that had probably seen them um but again this is just me speculating I mean even
0: just the idea that they were potentially potentially pursued like while they were at that food truck I mean they certainly were I don't know if it was malicious but certainly there was a man who was interested in one of them who was trying to pursue them but then it's interesting that you say that because around this hour we actually, and I don't know if you know this because I did not know this, this mm. as of this morning, but there's additional footage that comes out that actually shocked me because I, I hadn't heard very much about this in the news. And I guess that's why this is important to keep covering these stories as yeah. more comes out. But what we know now is that, of course, we know the stabbings took place sometime between 3 to 4 a.m. That is definitive. The police have not changed on that. We have this footage, again, that has nothing to do with the murders per se. But it's body cam footage from police officers who were doing, like, a stop of um, a bunch of students on, like, an underage drinking, like, suspected underage drinking, like, outside. They are, like, a couple hundred feet from 1122 King Road. Like, you can see the house in the background. And this footage is from 3.12 a.m. right within that window. And, okay, so this is there's a couple of things here why this footage is incredibly, incredibly crucial, Uh, apparently. I mean, we don't know this for sure, but... If you look in the footage, they're, you know, talking to these students who they're like kind of doing a drill of they're like what's your, we need your ID, how old are you, what are you doing with an open container kind of thing. In the far right background where you can kind of see towards the house, there are there's possibly one to two people who run across the road in the dark, possibly running from the home. And what you also hear, now it, it could be a million things, right? It could be like other students, it could be like Someone even said maybe it's a late-night jogger, which is ridiculous. Um, but what a lot of people are saying is that could very well be the suspect fleeing the scene of the crime that they just committed in that apartment. And the reason the timing of this feels kind of specific, that 3, twelve a.m. moment, right after that person runs away, what you can hear very faintly in the background is a very high pitch, what sounds like a high-pitched mm. woman's scream. Now... That would have been for naught. Everyone would have been like, you know what? That could have been anything. It could have been a a tire squeaking. I don't know. It could have been anything in the background. No one knows for sure. However, I did some more research on this and I was able to pull up a witness who kind of corroborated this. Let's see. He, I think he goes by Chef Dizzy. He might be like, he's a local guy, but he basically lives directly next to 1122 King Road. And he says that around this exact time, he also heard screams coming from that side of of the neighborhood, like from across the way. But he didn't think anything of this because it's right near Fraternity Row. It's a college town. People scream and do like rowdy stuff in the middle of the night all the time. It would just be a very bizarre coincidence that on video at around exactly 3.12, we see someone running in the dark from that direction. We hear a faint scream on camera, which then gets corroborated by this witness, this neighbor, at exactly the same time, it seems it seems like almost the immediate aftermath of what happened got caught on camera, which is the most menacing part. I, I had not read anything about that until this morning, and I don't know if any of it is accurate or true, but that foot that footage is still kind of now, shocking who, to watch. I mean, I had I'm assuming you hadn't heard that. about now, that who either. Who do
1: they think would be screaming?
0: Well, it's unclear because, well, so none of them had defensive wounds, like I said, so it was assumed by the coroner. Or what she's suggesting is that they were all killed in their sleep, except for Zana, who had the wounds. I think on her, she had pretty mm-hmm. deep wounds on her forearms. I think like she was fighting back. It still could have been
1: that it they just, were stabbed yeah.
0: in their sleep and couldn't really f- fight back, and in their final moments of maybe like trying to cry out for help or like gasp for air, one of them let out yeah. a blood curdling scream, which is it's like absolutely oh God, it's like horrific, devastating oh. to think about. But oh my gosh. But timing-wise, that really shocked me because I was like, this this really feels like a way in And if that's true, that really narrows the window, right? Totally. From 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. That can narrow it down to, like, 3 to 3.15, yeah. which yeah. is huge.
1: Um, I have one other question about that. Um, the yeah. Oh, I guess the other component is that if they could hear that scream from the, the witness and the body cam, like, everybody, I guess, mm-hmm. whoever... I guess it was just the witness that said they heard the scream. It's just amazing that uh, Dylan and Bethany wouldn't hear the scream on the first floor.
0: Yeah, well, that's also cor- like kind of like dispelled by the former tenant that they interview because they ask him, they're like, I mean, you live there. And he happened to live on the first floor, this guy. And he actually ends up saying, he's like, truth be told, you yeah. really can't hear very much. Like when you're on the first floor, he's like, unless somebody was like blasting music, he was like, you could maybe hear it a little bit on the second floor. He was like, but probably not the yep. third, which could suggest that maybe the scream, if there was a scream, it came from the third floor, which I think would make sense because if we're, we can't assume right. that Xana screamed because that would probably, I would assume that would maybe wake up Kaylee and Madison. So it w- might've been one of them. Mm. It's possible. We don't know for sure. Again, I, can't, yeah. I really cannot stress that enough that this is, just speculation based on the information that's been presented but that is kind of just the immediate aftermath and that's like what we have up until that timeline and then they also have this report i think once they go back of um a couple of witnesses who claim to see a 2011 to 2013 white hyundai uh, elantra yeah that was kind of near the scene of the crime around this time which they've yet to track down they have never they have not seen it since They don't know who was driving it. They've asked people to come forward if it was your car just so they can rule you out. Nobody has come forward. So they're not saying that that was definitively the person's car, but that was part of their argument. The police chief was saying, you know, not everybody watches the news. Not everybody watches the news. So if we're putting it out there saying, this is what we're looking for. If you drive this car, please come forward so we can talk to you. They may not see that. They may not hear it. So... That's where the case kind of stands. But then they get into the investigation, and then this is where things really start to unravel for me big time, because I learned a few things here that, for me, really narrow this down big time. That I think you're going to—you'll probably agree with me on this as well. But we talked a little bit about the police work on this and how heavily criticized it was, because we have received a lot of public information that has since been walked back. Um, So I would preface that the details that we are covering today— are purely what's been publicly reported to date, and they could change. Police have said things in press conferences um, that they've had to walk back. They first came out and said that you have to be vigilant and cautious because they think there's someone dangerous within the town, alluding to there being a serial killer. They have since walked that back. They said, no, this was an isolated incident. Do not be fearful. Although there are many people who would disagree with them on that because there's a few things here that they kind of glossed over. And there's also a statement claiming that I think even the mayor said something about this, about how the bodies were found. We talked about this earlier. Like you were asking if the victims were found all in one space or like in separate rooms. They were definitely found in separate rooms and floors. I think that that hasn't changed. What has changed is they said that they were all found in their beds. That turned out not to be true. Some of them were found outside of their beds, which could suggest if that's true Maybe they were stabbed and they did not die right away. They Mm -hmm. were trying to like get Mm -hmm. to the door, get to a phone, do something, you know, try to get help and maybe scream. But the confusion around it, I think is why people have been so critical and frustrated with the work on this is because publicly there's been a lot of misinformation and it breeds more misinformation when people are getting false accounts of what actually happened from the the press conferences. That's a big problem. So I I understand them wanting to withhold information. Absolutely, I think that's probably paramount for the case. But I also think that it's it's deceptive and it it can be dangerous to give false false information if you are absolutely because you
1: start creating the cracks become craters. You start to let people think that they can Mm. if they see like a point of weakness, uh, you know, in people that are covering the case or law enforcement covering the case they're gonna call in outlandish you know theories and rumors they're gonna start going down wild goose chases because they see a police force that kind of doesn't know um you know which way to turn or you you just don't want people taking advantage of that you know
0: i wonder if that's part of like what what's like creating so much um not distrust but like there's a lot of fear in the community right now because i've seen a lot of people on tiktok talking about it. And I've seen people who actually are from Moscow and they're saying right now it's not a good time. Everyone there is really really scared. People are leaving, people are scared to let their kids out. Like it's not it doesn't feel like a safe space. So I wondered if ever if maybe that played into some of the withholding of information or the skewing of information because their investigation is still going to go on regardless. I just think it's dangerous in a lot of different ways. Like I said to just keep perpetuating Information that you then have to walk back, and like I said, we've been we're like six weeks into this now. We still don't have a suspect named. There's no motive given by investigators, but we do have confirmation that they have not found the murder weapon. It's missing, and whoever did this is still that
1: blows my mind. Yeah, the murder weapon. When I read that, I was just like, "Dang!" I mean, they really don't have much that they can go off of right now, and I think sometimes in those instances, it's better to. I mean, I I don't know anything about, you know, being an investigator and how the protocols you're supposed to follow. But I would think if you don't have any evidence to go off of, why not share what you do know with the community? Because I think the community can be one of your greatest tools, especially a small town where people know each other, where, you know, I I think I said this to you earlier, but it really reminds me of the Delphi case that it's just... um, you know Mm -hmm. withholding that information the further and further along you get I think it gets dicier and dicier um so anyways yeah no
0: no, it's true I mean even with the Delphi case because as we would as we've learned now like five years into it they had already interviewed their culprit
1: that is the craziest thing you're saying that because I was starting to think that's so weird that you just said that I literally thought today as i was reading about this case i was like they've got to go back and they've got to re-interview people because i that still haunts me to this day that the delphi case the guy had been interviewed already and they just kind of let it go like you just have to you have got to go he back yeah he's completely was free completely for what free, like yeah. two years or something or no longer
0: full like five, five years, years yeah. yeah he printed the memorial photos for the girls funerals he was a local like photo that's op insane. worker at cbs yes
1: that's insane yeah. um
0: and he, he did he gave he handed them i read about this he handed them to the parents on the house that's like, literally
1: charge. sick that's
0: so sick it's, i read that and i was like actually actually sick to my stomach yeah about it. but it's it's interesting that you talk about like revisiting people they've already interviewed people they've already ruled out because they have ruled out Quite a, quite a number, like all the obvious people that you would turn to. You're like at first, oh my God, the roommates. What about the the Uber driver? What about the guy at the food truck or Jack, the boyfriend who was called nine times in total? Like it seems like there's so many avenues this could go, but they truly, truly have ruled out like everybody. So I, I wanted to dive into the investigation of like where they looked first and the first and most obvious place that I think everyone was looking to were those roommates, Dylan and Bethany. Now, the big question that we had talked about was how did they hear nothing in a quadruple homicide within their own home? Now, this is where I get into the former tenant who confirms in their interview. He says, you know, I I lived in there. I lived on the first floor. I can corroborate like you really cannot hear anything on the upper floors, especially if like you're sleeping or you've been drinking that night. And I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. Odd, but it makes a lot of sense. But then we get something that's really strange here. So... We talked about the dog a little bit before. Now, I found the dog, the presence of the dog within the apartment to be very odd because I thought that if this was a clear break-in, then that dog would have gone berserk. No matter, because dogs can tell even from like several floors away, I would assume, unless it's just a very docile dog. But what we know, or what we can assume, is that the murders took place on the second and third floor, so the dog must have been on the first floor, having, if they did not detect any kind of intruder or commotion going on throughout the home. However, I read as of this morning, this is from an alleged witness, a report that came in of a neighbor who was walking their dog that morning, the morning of November 13th, to at 8am. They saw the front door to the house wide open. Now, This tells us a couple of things here, okay? Either that killer attacked all four people and then made their way downstairs to the first floor and went out the front door of the apartment somehow without waking Dylan or Bethany or even disturbing the dog or there's speculation that Dylan and Bethany were already awake by that time and for some reason had that front door open. And this is a theory. There are no accusations here whatsoever, Mm -hmm. but... It's odd, and people are speculating around why the door was open so early in the morning, yet the discovery and the first 911 call does not come in until almost noon of that day. And police have yet to make any formal comment on that discrepancy. I had not read that until That
1: this is a really big nugget. That, that is odd. That is very odd.
0: Front door open by 8am. I just, I, the presence, I mean, I could completely buy so much of this, that this happened on the second and third floor without detection. From the other roommates, and then that person made their way very quietly and discreetly down to the first floor and goes out the front door. I just think the the added element of the dog dispels a lot of that. Yeah, it, it would be very shocking to me if a dog did not lose their absolute mind of a stranger in that house. Absolutely,
1: and also, like, let's say the dog is asleep. Mm-hmm. Dogs are so sensitive to doors opening, especially because it's like, someone's coming in, someone's going out, I can go out, I can leave. Dogs yeah, are yeah. super heightened to doors. Like, that would be, yeah, that that is a really interesting nugget because also, like, let's take into account how freaking cold it is in November in Idaho. Like, the door oh, is yeah. just ajar. I mean, that's also very strange. Um,
0: For all of the morning, yeah. too. I mean... We could, if we assume that happened at like 3 or 4 Mm -hmm. a.m. when they actually left the house. I'm assuming they left around that time. And then for eight full hours, the door is just open.
1: Very, very strange.
0: I, I, yeah, I found that one very odd. But like I said, police have not really, they've not made a comment on that discrepancy in the story. Um, But what's also odd about this is that there's, they're claiming there's no sign of forced entry. So based on that, I think we can assume definitively, that the second floor was the point of entry if they went through the unlocked sliding door. But I think what that suggests is that this, like what you were saying, this is likely a person who had been in the house previously and knew the layout pretty well. And it's kind of, okay, it's also backed by this thing that um, was corroborated. I saw this on the news, but I also saw this in the interview with the former tenant. The bedrooms have a lock system on the bedroom Mm. doors. Each bedroom has a combination lock keypad, which you would think would massively narrow this down. It's like, how many people could possibly know the combos to these rooms?
1: Unless your doors were open, I guess.
0: Well, that's what I thought. I was like, either the doors were open, although I'm going to be very real. And I I really racked my brain about this today. I've had roommates. I've been through college. I've lived with a lot of roommates. I have never, ever lived with anyone who's like kept their door open while they're sleeping. Ever. And of course, there are anomalies. People do that and nothing is definitive. However, I found that very strange. So if their doors weren't open, I'm like, it had to have been somebody who knew the combinations at least to the upstairs bedroom because the sliding door. I'm unclear if the sliding door enters towards a hallway. I would assume it enters towards the bedroom, like directly in. And so maybe they didn't need to know that one, but they needed to know the combination to at least one of the rooms upstairs because there's two bedrooms, I think, on the top floor And this person just happened to know which bedroom both of the girls were in because they're in the same bed. Now, at first I thought I was like, that definitely narrows down the pool of who could possibly know the combos to those rooms. But apparently this was also a party house. So there had been a lot of students who had been in that house previously in the past. So learning those combos probably wouldn't be as difficult as you might think if you'd been there for a party in the past. If like, you're like, oh, I've got to get into your room to use the bathroom or like, you know what I mean? Like it might just be easier to like get word of what the combo is. Well, to that, that
1: again, I I didn't know that. That adds another other nugget here because I mean, how many times have you gone into somebody's house and remembered the combo from a party?
0: Well, it would have. Had yeah, to have
1: you would to have had to have like it. remembered yeah. exactly whose room that was, what the code is. Like, yeah, that that's. That, oh.
0: But if we're going off of that, would that not also suggest that whoever did this was of, like, college age? If they're at a college party, they're definitely not, like, a third or four-year-old. It's someone in their age group, probably, if they had been to that house previously. Unless those are, like, old combos to those doors from, like, years and years prior. But I can't—none of that—that doesn't even add up, you know, like, in terms of motive or anything. It's just so bizarre. I mean, to
1: me, what really is so odd about this case is that um, as a killer— The deck is really stacked against you. I mean, you've got people in the house that can, you know, prevent Mm -hmm. you from doing your killing. Uh, You've got a combo on the door. You've got a dog. And yet somehow this person pulled all of this off and there's nothing that they're really like evidence wise can go off right now. That's crazy to me.
0: It seems incredibly yeah. far-fetched, yeah. incredibly far-fetched. Well, I tried to, so like after hearing about the door codes, I'm like, I have to repiece what the yes, roadmap yes. Of this looked like. So what's, sho- okay, I was like, so what's shocking to me about this? If I go through, okay, so if I think through this, you go through the sliding door, you enter the sliding door, you either enter the code to the bedroom or it leads directly into the bedroom. I would assume it does. Brutally, brutally, Ethan and Xana are killed right within that room. They are the first to be killed. This person then walks up the stairs, punches in the code to the upstairs bedroom, not knowing which room both of the girls are in. What if they went into the other room? They might have. We don't know. And then after they kill them, we assuming, we're assuming we assuming they travel down two flights of stairs, walk past the roommate's room and the dog on the first floor, and directly exit through the front door in silence. That is... it's It's... Yeah, like you're saying, it's just a very shocking execution i really i couldn't like it just what it screams to me is familiarity with the space it seems like somebody who feels like they know that home really well they must know the codes really well they know where everybody sleeps probably but also maybe even someone who was familiar to the dog was what i was yeah yeah if that if that dog was not upset or like startled or scared that really bothered me and freaked me out as well i i I mean, I was trying to piece it together. And I mean, sorry. No, I was just
1: going to say the amount of sheer luck it would take for if it's someone that that they don't know or someone that didn't know the space or didn't know the other people in the house. I mean, the luck is insane to be able to get out scot-free.
0: Yeah, and completely, if it was completely randomized, which it would suggest, everything is suggesting that it's not. However, according to police and the public page that they have set up connected to this case, they have definitively ruled out both of the roommates— We've got the eerie hoodie guy at the food truck. He's been ruled out. The driver's been ruled out. Everybody at that food truck was ruled out. Um, Jack, the ex-boyfriend, ruled out. Like, even, I think, um, it was one of the other roommates. So there's someone else on the lease. There's another roommate who's on the lease who had already moved Mm. out. So I was like, oh, that that could be someone who's at least familiar with the space. Someone who has a key still. Someone who knows the codes to the doors. They've been ruled out as well. So what does that kind of leave us with? Well, police went back to kind of look for some anecdotal evidence from friends to hear what people were saying. Kaylee had made mention of a stalker. I'm not sure if you heard a bit about this, but she said a stalker was preying on her about a week or two prior to this. And there's one confirmed incident, I guess, of a guy who followed her. I think she works at a restaurant. He followed her out of her place of work to her car. And then uh, I I think he was like, I I don't know, some guys like pushed him off or something or came and. Defended her. But eventually, they like actually track down this guy from witness accounts and they pull him in to question him. He is cleared as well. And it's not even, they're not sure if it's connected to this like stalker claim that she had. He could have been a separate creepy guy and like an isolated incident, but there's also no additional evidence of this stalker outside of the anecdotal evidence and the conversations that Kaylee had given to her friends. So, police, like I said, they've insisted they don't believe that it might've been the stalker. They don't believe there's a serial killer here. And they've just been heavily criticized in their investigation for ruling so many things out and just glossing over things that seem eerily obvious. Right. Yeah. And it's like, they're trying to dispel the rumor that there's someone profoundly dangerous lurking within this town.
1: It seems much too fast um, to be having our, I mean, like, don't you take like multiple passes? At, I mean, I don't know how many passes they've taken interviewing these people, but it, it seems like just given the timeline, it's, it's the end of December. It's only been about a month, I guess.
0: Well, I thought that too. I was like, it seems incredibly fast, but if you, it is true that if you know, you know, I don't know if this yeah. is hundred percent, 100% true as of yet, but in terms of like just factual, like forensic evidence, because all of the right, people right, who right. were their lead suspects, they have ar- they already have the DNA results from all the DNA that was collected. And none of those people who were initial suspects are a match. Which also throws me on my ass because it's like, wh- who could this have been? Why? It doesn't make any sense to me.
1: I'm really trying Th- to think of anybody. There that- was
0: hair left at the scene. There were clothing fibers, saliva. like.
1: And they haven't other- released, like they have-, have they released anything about the gender or the...
0: I don't know. No, I don't think they've released anything as conclusive as that. What I saw in the statement was that they've collected the DNA evidence, all of those things. It's been tested. It did not match anyone that they have in their database at all. So, what that tells us is two things this is someone who has never killed before, or it's someone who has never been caught for their crimes ever. They have never been convicted of anything. And I'm assuming they took, if they already got the results back. They've tested it against any of the former suspects and it just doesn't match for the roommates, doesn't match for the ex-boyfriend. Like, it's completely random. That's so weird. And it's it's shocking again because, like, going back to, like, the serial killer concept, which a lot of people are like, there's there seems to be something going on in this town. Police have ruled that, like I said, they don't believe that there are, you know, any of the sinister things are connected to this case. But I did want to bring up that story I told you a Mm -hmm. couple of weeks ago about the reports of the dog that was found in town. Yeah. Now, this is incredibly graphic, but in Moscow, about a couple of weeks prior to these murders, a local family dog, an Australian shepherd was found to have been stolen and skinned alive and left in the middle of town, which is one of the darkest omens that I can imagine. But I think it's nearly impossible to not conflate the two I mean it, it's just I can't imagine there is someone separate of who did these stabbings who was also capable someone who was also capable of doing that yeah you know it seems connected but they're they seem definitive they're like it's not connected that's
1: so that's um, I think your gut instinct is very much on the nose I think that like to, to skin a dog is that's just not something that's it's, it's normal. serial killer stuff yeah it's yeah. serial killer stuff it's serial yeah.
0: killer stuff I mean to commit such heinous crimes. And the, the odds of that happening in the same town, it, I think it's more so that they're trying to dispel the rumors that there could be. There's like a psychomaniac who's out yeah. there on the loose, like to to not scare people. But also, I mean, you have to keep people vigilant. You have to keep people protected yeah. if like there's someone out there. I
1: wonder if. Sorry, I shouldn't speculate. I wonder if there are any previous tenants that still live in the town that like or people that lived in that complex that like could be suspects i don't really know why they would want to do that
0: but yeah well a lot of people have said well it, it seems so completely random so they were trying to trace it back like what you're doing they're like well maybe there's some there's a pattern here that we can look at there were a couple of cases that i wanted to pull up that um it's unknown obviously if these are connected people are just kind of relaying it because they're unsolved and it's highly coincidental to like the nature of these attacks so there's two cases there's one in 1999 and then there was one in 2021 both were relatively close to this area um, both are unsolved and involved like a home invasion with no motive to steal anything or you know assault anybody just to attack and kill people via stabbing to stab people to death brutally now several people died in those attacks or actually i think maybe only one actually died in those attacks um there were survivors of those which is how they were able to give the witness accounts of this masked man who came into their home for no reason in this area and just started stabbing them profusely. It's unknown if that's related to this case. But of course, everybody was like, maybe this is a a serial killer who, allegedly, they're like, this is a serial killer who has a pattern of like, does it once, waits all these years later, and then does it again in 2021, Mm -hmm. and then tries to follow it up in 2022, like, just can't stay away from it. and That's not, I mean, that's not the only report in this town of something sinister going on because the reporting on this is very murky, but it's not clear on the legitimacy of this claim. But I did find a report that came in. It's, I don't know if this was a couple of days prior or a few days after these murders in Moscow, two women returned to their car in the parking lot at night and they found an unknown man who was sitting in the driver's seat. So when he spotted them, he gets out of the car and starts chasing them. (laughs) With a weapon in hand. Now, allegedly, they make it to safety. They get to, like, a business or a home or something in time. And the guy just runs off into the woods. He was not identified. He was not caught. And it's unclear if he was, like, trying to steal their car or if he was waiting for what them. What the hell? In this car. Oh, my God. But this happened This happened recently, like, right within the window of these murders. So people are saying, they're like, there's something going on yeah. in this town between the dog and this incident and a quadruple homicide police are just trying to save a little bit of face, but we don't know. We don't really know.
1: That's so, I did not know about the two um, murders prior that that's very, very weird, Mm -hmm. but still it just feels, it's just,
0: it's a lack of clarity. It still
1: just feels so. Yeah. I I just can't get over how familiar it feels like the person was with the space. Um, Mm Hmm. But at the same time, I, I'm I'm kind of torn on if I feel like it was deliberate against Maddie and Kaylee, or if it was kind of a freak, like I'm just going to go in and kill, like a random killing, like a serial killer killing.
0: Yeah, like a like yeah. a randomized. Yeah, um, it it could be completely randomized. I think you're you're dead on though. There's something about the familiarity with the space. There's something about the absence of the commotion with the dog. That knowing of the bedroom codes that just feels too yeah. specific and too premeditated for it to be like this yeah. door was open so let me go in yeah kind of thing. i mean that would be so many things would have had to go off without without issue i mean that's really like walk if you're going in there at random it's like walking in on a six against yeah that's what scenario. i'm saying i'm
1: like i feel like a serial killers are notoriously pretty you know careful in the meticulous about their killing that's why they're able to kill so many people it seems really like i said the the deck would be so stacked against them to go in and choose you know this place mm-hmm. to go in and decide to kill
0: it's just weird i mean and even talking through it like i'm still confused by how all of it's laid out and i don't want to take away from some of the diligent police work that i think has been yeah. done on this but for all of these reasons, the trail here is very unclear. I don't think we have any evidence that's been released to support that there's like, like a digital trail on that could link to a motive or like a person of interest. It just feels so random. But I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's kind of impossible to say that it's random because of what we just yeah. talked about, like all of those additional details. And what's probably the most upsetting about it is that this is by far the most high profile and baffling case of the year. And I. I have a very upsetting feeling that it's probably going to go a while before we see a legitimate solve here because of how many conflicting details yeah. there are. I mean, I think the longer that we can keep attention on it, and we can keep the momentum of the story going, and just keep you know reporting on it, the closer we'll get to a solve. Hopefully, if we keep media pressure on it. But to sort of paraphrase, just what one of the family members said about the victims, they said, "Whoever," they said about the the case itself, they said, "Whoever did this, we're gonna get you." That's the the general sentiment is that there are too many things Mm -hmm. left behind. There are too many people who care about this case. Too many people who are propelling this story for you to just walk away from it. They're going to get you. And I would just kind of like button this up um, before we really close out like any final comments about this. I mean, I did want to give a quick like call to action for anybody who is in the area or who knows something or sees something. You can call the tip line that they provided. The number is 208 833-7180 833-7180 or you can contact them by tipline at cs.moscow.id.us but please please I will preface only only use these resources for legitimate incredible tips because they have been I've seen so many reports of them being flooded like I was saying with um, theories people's theories and they really don't they don't need theories right now they need legitimate witness accounts that can help further the investigation and the The biggest clue that they've said to be on the lookout for is that 2011 2013 white Hyundai Elantra. I mean, no one has come forward on that. the The owner of that is unknown, and I think they said something in an interview. I think it was the police chief. He said we've narrowed, we've tried to narrow it down, but there's like thousands of like I, white white Hyundai Elantra. Owners I was going to say.
1: I mean, they are that they couldn't be more unlucky that it had to be that car because they're so. That's such a common car. Um, Especially, I Mm -hmm. bet, in a college town where, you know, you don't have flashy cars. I mean, a Hyundai Elantra is like a Toyota Corolla or a Honda Civic. I mean, they're everywhere.
0: Um, Yeah. No, I think, and just with that, I think we would probably just like to jointly probably share some positive and healing thoughts towards these families, you know, going through the most unimaginable. And we, we really do hope that sharing the information on this case can help elevate the awareness on it and can lead to more progress and hopefully identifying the person behind it. And I think the, the closing sentiment we would both have is that we just hope for closure for the families and for those who continue to cover this story just to do so in a constructive and, and thoughtful way, I think is beneficial to the case. Absolutely.
1: And I think you and I both have an even more, um, uh, just intense feeling about this case because we both went to big public universities like that. Um, and the it's, it's a wonderful it's time in your life and the, their lives were just getting started and they were having so much fun together as friends. And um, it seemed like even just that photo of them that's on, you know, everything that's been blown up everywhere. They seemed really, really close. Um, and you just don't ever imagine that like, you know, your, your sibling, if you're <laughs> one of like a triplet or you're, sister or brother, whoever, your son or daughter is going to go off Mm -hmm. to have, you know, the greatest four years of their life and something tragic like this happens. So, um, I hope that that, I, I think what's really nice about public universities, they do a good job of like bonding and keeping the community like really strong around, um, you know, tragedies when they happen. So, um, yeah, I just, I share all your sentiments and I hope that, um, you know, people keep this story, going and um yeah I just wish all of the most positive and warm thoughts to their families. I agree.
0: Yeah I think we'll probably keep an eye on this case for a while too because we, we could be very wrong you know this may see like I was saying in the beginning I think they are gearing up to make some kind of announcement on this because they've alluded to suggest they're saying that they're going to release the 911 calls which is going to be yeah very telling very telling just to hear I mean I I I'm hesitant about that as well because I think it will be helpful for a lot of reasons. I can also see how that can be detrimental because people scrutinize everything that gets released. And that's going to spin a huge web of like new conspiracies, new theories for things that Mm -hmm. may have been taken out of context, things that might have been taken in shock or like a state of mania. I truly believe, I mean, if they've ruled out Dylan and Bethany, I think whatever their actions were when they discovered those bodies came from a state of intense shock and mania. I can't imagine... How your brain can yeah, process? Yeah, I what do you're too, seeing. and I
1: bet I bet the reason that that call has not been released, I think probably twofold. The police are trying to protect what they know, but um, I am sure that they are trying to protect those Dylan and Bethany as well, because whatever comes out, like you said, from that call is going to be. People have already, you know, gone so ape with the story with theories and conspiracies that, like, oh, you just. Against them specifically.
0: I mean, like, they were targets, number one. So, I mean, beyond the trauma of what they saw, if they truly are innocent, it's the trauma of having the entire world not believe you.
1: I just pray that whatever the outcome is of releasing those tapes, if they are innocent, um, that they, you know, it doesn't traumatize them any more than they already have been. My God.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. We'll be watching this one. I... Thank you again to the Creepers for going along on this one. I know that we usually, we kind of balance these with a little bit of reprieve and a little bit of, you know, gentle humor with some of them uh, because they are very heavy cases. But I think this was an important one to cover for awareness, but also just to give like a really thorough, concise timeline. I feel really good about just relaying what has been stated publicly and we'll follow up on it if we see any solves We'll probably end up doing an emergency episode. I have a feeling we will. And yeah, I I just hope that they see closure one day. So I think for now we will say goodbye. Thank you again, Creepers, for listening. We will catch you on the next one. Bye, Creepers.
1: Bye, everybody.